0: Good morning. We just prayed, but I'd uh, like to pray again, so let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you might take from our minds everything that would distract us from your word. We pray that you might give me words that are true and uh, which reflect what you have to say to us. And, uh, Father, we pray that your spirit might so work in us that we live as the people who follow the Lord Jesus and we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, often it is when you are under stress that your character is displayed. How you handle challenge, uh, criticism, attack or rebuke says a lot about you as a person. I remember when I was uh, much younger, someone wrote in a report about me, he doesn't handle criticism well. That's not true, I retorted. (laughs) Which proved the comment to be right on the money, of course. Uh, I hope I've grown a fair bit since then, but uh, confrontation and challenge, criticism and rebuke, they're not always easy for any of us to swallow, are they? And what about when there is a relentless campaign against you, unjustified but unrelenting, a determined attempt to bring you down, to ruin your reputation, or worse still, to cause you physical harm, how would you respond? If you can think of a time when something like that has happened to you, how did you respond? At times like that, the veneer of politeness and grace can peel away and leave on display something we wish we weren't, can't it? Last time we turned to Matthew's Gospel together, we saw something far worse than anything most of us will ever face. You might remember Jesus' act of compassion and mercy towards a man with a withered hand who came to the synagogue that day. And if you do, you'll remember how the Pharisees were lying in wait, eager to trap him, eager to expose him as a lawbreaker who deserved the most severe penalty of the law himself. And knowing full well what they were doing, after putting them on the spot with his own question and his declaration that not only was it lawful to do good on the Sabbath, but he, Jesus, was in fact the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus did exactly what they thought he would do. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand, and it was completely restored like his other one. And Matthew tells us, and going out, the Pharisees conspired against him as to how they might destroy him it was a totally unwarranted and despicable reaction. It was vicious and unprincipled. Jesus had acted in gentleness and mercy and compassion and their reaction is to begin to plot how to get rid of him. And the very next words in Matthew's Gospel are, and Jesus knew. Imagine that. He he knew exactly what they were doing exactly what they were planning to do. And his reaction to their plans reveals something extraordinary about his character and about his mission. And it is something that uh, you and I both need to hear this morning because who he is and what he is going to do helps us recalibrate our approach to what is going on about us lifts our eyes to the horizon of the gospel and challenges our own foolish responses to the obstacles we will inevitably face in Christian ministry. And amongst the other things we will learn is that it is not only what you do that matters, but how you do it. How you exercise this ministry matters. So will you turn with me to Matthew chapter 12... And verse 15, if you haven't already. And Jesus, knowing this, withdrew from there and many followed him. And he healed all of them and warned them not to make him known in order that what was said by Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, look, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim my verdict to the nations. He will not quarrel nor cry out, neither will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not extinguish, until he drives the verdict to victory. And on his name the nations will hope. It's glorious and it's short. A report of what Jesus did after the healing of the man with the withered hand in the face of the conspiracy that was being constructed around him and then an explanation of his action in terms of the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 42. The passage divides up quite simply, doesn't it, what he did and what it means. And did you notice it was for you? He will proclaim the verdict to the nations. Verse 18. And on his name, the nations will hope, verse 21. So let's look at those two parts briefly. What he did, verses 15 to 16, and what it means, verses 17 to 21. First, what he did. Matthew has shown repeatedly throughout his gospel that Jesus has extraordinary power. He has healed lepers, those oppressed by demons, those with life-threatening illnesses. He commanded the wind and the waves and they obeyed him. And he had just healed a man with a withered hand, with just a word. All he had to do was say, stretch out your hand. See, everything is pointing to him being the Messiah, the long-promised deliverer of God. In fact, when John the Baptist wavered back in chapter 11... Jesus pointed him to the Old Testament promises about the Messiah and used them to explain what he was doing. So how would you expect someone with that kind of power and authority to act when it comes to his attention that those who oppose him are plotting to kill him? Well, you know what would happen in President Putin's Russia, don't you? Those Pharisees would simply disappear and never be seen again. You know what would have happened at the time of the French Revolution? Madame Le Guillotine. You know what would have happened in Al Capone's Chicago? He'd just send the boys around, some show of force that would silence the opposition and strike fear into even his supporters. But how does Jesus act? He makes a strategic withdrawal and warns those he helps not to make him known. He doesn't hit back. He doesn't stop them in their tracks with just a word. He doesn't simply withdraw his sustaining power without which they could not even take a breath. No, he leaves and he cautions silence. Now, isn't that just a little too passive for the Messiah? The Messiah triumphs. The Messiah defeats the enemies of God The Messiah blazes forth in strength and glory and victory, doesn't he? John the Baptist, it seems, was troubled that Jesus was not the revolutionary figure who, in shows of magnificent strength, just swept away all opposition and ungodliness. But here it is again. Nothing dramatic in response to the Pharisees' high drama. Not what you might expect. Not entirely passive, of course. He he heals those who follow him. He heals all who are brought to him. As one writer puts it, he heals them all. There are no failures. But he doesn't take the Pharisees on. He doesn't quarrel or wrangle with them. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't impose his will upon them. He stopped the howling wind and the crashing waves with a single command but he does not do that here. He just withdraws and says quietly to the recipients of his kindness, don't tell anyone. Why? Is Jesus really that insipid? Is he really weak after all? How are we to understand this reaction to such unjustified, corrupt and wicked behaviour on the part of the Pharisees? Is there really nothing else he could do? Well, for Matthew, the answer lies, as it almost always does, in what the Old Testament has to say about him. In Matthew's Gospel, the entire thing, Jesus' person and ministry can only be understood in the light of what God has promised, a promise stretching all the way back at least to Abraham. And that is why Matthew takes us back to the Old Testament again here. He healed them all, and he warned them not to make him known in order that he might fulfil what was said through the prophet Isaiah. What he did that day was not arbitrary. It was not the product of a knee-jerk reaction. It was not simply that he wanted to keep a low profile. It was not simply a strategy for keeping himself alive. It was not simply that he preferred not to seek publicity, not to draw attention to himself. Now, what Jesus did in withdrawing and healing all who followed him and warning them not to make him known, all of this, like everything else about him, has its anchor in the scriptures. So secondly, what, what it means. The words of the prophet explain why Jesus has reacted in this way. They help us to see how this reaction reveals his character and points us to his mission. In their original context, Isaiah's words speak of one to come, a great idealised figure who will bring justice, who will put God's order and plan for the universe into full effect and make the one true God known throughout the whole earth. This one will be the answer to Israel's repeated weakness and failure. More specifically, as Alec Matea puts it, he brings the result of the trial between the Lord and the idols, the verdict that has been authoritatively settled by God himself in his courtroom. In all the earth, there is only one God. He brings this verdict out into the open, to the entire world, and this verdict will prevail. It will not be overturned. But now, now that Jesus has come, the words open up even more. Matthew recognises that these words suit Jesus to a T. But more than that, Jesus did what he did in response to the Pharisees' conspiracy in order that these words might be fulfilled. Look, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim my verdict to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out, neither will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not extinguish, until he drives the verdict to victory, and on his name the nations will hope. The quote itself has three parts. Do you see them? Who this servant is, what this servant will do, and how this servant will do it. In verse 18, he is the servant. Not just the servant, but my servant. He comes to do the will of another, not simply his own will. Whatever the agenda of the Pharisees or anyone else, he has come to do this one thing, the will of his Father. Verse 18 again, he is the servant whom I have chosen. It's a rather oblique expression of how different Jesus was to the Pharisees. This was was not a battle, you see, between two different leadership styles or two different religious philosophies. Jesus was chosen in a way that no one else has been before or since. He is the chosen one of the living God and clearly the Pharisees are not. Verse 18 yet again. He is the servant in whom my soul is well pleased. God's delight rests upon him. They are words we've already heard at Jesus' baptism. We'll hear them again at his transfiguration. God's pleasure and delight does not rest with the Pharisees. It rests on this one, his servant, the servant he has chosen. Yet even more than that, he is the servant upon whom God has put his spirit, verse 18 again. For right from the start of Matthew's gospel, right from the start of Jesus' ministry in this gospel, it's clear that the Holy Spirit has been involved. When Mary was betrothed to Jesus, or to Joseph, sorry, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. It was the Spirit who descended from heaven like a dove at Jesus' baptism. It was the Spirit who led him into the wilderness to be tempted. At point after point, it is clear that Jesus' ministry is enabled by the work of the Spirit. That's why later in this chapter, the discussion will focus on the Spirit and his ministry. So that's who he is. He is God's chosen and beloved servant upon whom the Spirit rests. That's the one who left the Pharisees to themselves in their plotting, healed all who came to him and warned them not to make him known. He always was and always will be the chosen and beloved servant of the Lord. And God's spirit is upon him at every point, from the virginal conception in Mary's womb to his offering of himself through the eternal spirit without blemish to God. God's spirit is upon him at this very point too. What he does... Right now, what he does, he does as this one. And what is it that he does? Was well, it's there in verse 18 as well, isn't it? He will proclaim justice. He will proclaim the judgment of God, the legal decision or verdict of God to the nations. We've already seen hints of this in the Gospel, in the genealogy in Matthew 1 and the attention drawn to Rahab and Ruth and the wife of Uzziah, uh, Uriah, sorry, the Hittite, in the visit of the wise men from the east in Matthew 2, the healing of the centurion, uh, a centurion servant, sorry, in Matthew 8, and the healing of the Gadarene demoniacs, in, also in Matthew 8. Jesus' earthly ministry wasn't directly to the nations, to be sure. He insisted that he was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but at the end of this gospel... He would send out his apostles to make disciples of all nations. And just a few chapters before that, he would talk of how this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The inclusion of the nations in the purpose of the only living God is the great decision of God. That is justice, that is the verdict the decision which tears down the barrier between Jew and Gentile at the cross, that is the ministry of this servant and he will proclaim the decision, the verdict to the nations. That is what he does. Yet, friends, most important of all is how this servant will do what this servant was given to do. How will he proclaim God's verdict to the nations? he will do it with an unexpected gentleness. He will not march through the world in force. He will not incite the mob and overthrow tyranny that way. He will not manipulate people. This mission he has undertaken will not proceed by argumentative propaganda or personal publicity, by foot stamping and posturing or by single-mindedly, undistractedly mowing down all opposition. To use Isaiah's words, or Matthew's version of Isaiah's words, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. That is so not how I want to deal with opposition when it arises. It is so not what, even then, some of his followers wanted him to do. Remember the famous Sons of Thunder? Let's call down fire from heaven to consume them. But that's not the way he prosecutes his mission. As we'll see in a minute, there's not the slightest doubt that he will accomplish his mission, but how he does that matters. Not by quarrelling, not by crying out, not by drawing attention to himself and a bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wick he will not extinguish. What Jesus' reaction to the plot of the Pharisees reveals is not only a focused mission but a gentleness of heart. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not extinguish. Reeds, Growing by the millions on a riverbed are a dime a dozen, really, especially in that part of the world. If the one you select turns out to be bruised or bent, you can afford to just cast it aside, break it off, throw it away. It's not worth the effort. And a smouldering wick in a lamp, that blackened and smoking piece of linen that's just about to come to an end, you just snuff it out and put in a new one not worth the effort really. Both are pictures of what one writer calls commonplace insignificance and yet this servant chosen by God, beloved of God, the one who delights the heart of God, the one on whom the spirit rests the one whose mission encompasses the world in the end, he will not break even a bruised reed and he will not extinguish a smouldering wick. That's what is happening here in Jesus' response to the Pharisees and their evil. Not cowardice, not self-protection, but a gentle, generous determination to reach out to the inconsequential, to the wretched and the unremarkable, to the bruised and the smouldering. It is this way that he will drive the verdict to victory. And it matters that he does it this way. The servant will bring the great reordering of the world, the great eschatological salvation to the nations, but the way he does it is through reaching out to those who are, how did he put it at the end of Matthew 11? All who labour and are loaded down with burdens. (laughs) And that is why the nations will set their hope on his name. Because, you see, both these things are true of the servant of Jesus. An unexpected gentleness and an undeterred victory. He will win. The verdict of God which stands over all the world, the Jews and the Gentiles, will be declared and it will triumph. But it matters how. Jesus' response to the Pharisees' murderous summit was in fact a fulfilment of the scriptures, this scripture to be precise. It revealed his character. It revealed the way his mission will proceed. He has not turned away from his mission, but turned towards it. And Isaiah 42 brings to light the three things we might otherwise so easily miss The mission of God's chosen servant extends to the nations. It is energized by the Spirit and it proceeds with a gentle compassion for the broken and the helpless. Now, we are the recipients of that mission, aren't we? We are the beneficiaries of Jesus' determination not only to proclaim the verdict of God to the nation, God's plan, God's will, God's sovereign and eternal intention but also the gentleness that scoops up the insignificant and the inconsequential, those who could easily be passed over as useless and dispensable, the bruised reed and the smouldering wick. The victor we need is just like this, absolutely triumphant. And by the end of this gospel, on the other side of the resurrection, we will see that, yet gentle and compassionate. He will ensure God's just cause triumphs, but he does it this way. And we could stop there, of course. Marvel at him. Rejoice at him. Be confronted by him. Comforted by him. His mission. His manner of fulfilling it. This is the one who saved us. The verdict has reached to us and in his name, we hope. And he did it this way, with such gentleness... And understanding and compassion. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Yet at the same time, those who are recipients of such a mission have been enlisted in that mission, haven't we? This gospel will end with the Great Commission, after all. And we who are gathered in this hall this morning are preparing for our own involvement in this mission of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. To all nations. And so for us another question arises, will we be like him as we do it? Will we echo in our own behaviour, not only his priorities, but his manner? And the point at which this question will become most pressing is when we are under pressure when we are stressed, when we are opposed. When what is said about us is unfair and untrue and designed to bring us down. When people are talking about us, plotting against us, behind our backs. Because as I said at the beginning, often it is when you are under stress that your character is displayed. So, friends, this morning there's more than one reason to be reminded not only of what Jesus did, but how he did it. Even and especially in this remarkable contrast to the vindictive hatred of the Pharisees. He will not quarrel nor cry out. Neither will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not extinguish until he drives the verdict to victory and on his name the nations will hope. Shall we pray together? Our Father, we thank you for the gentleness of Jesus and his victory and we pray that we might proclaim his victory and display his gentleness And we ask it so that he might receive all the glory you have intended for him from all eternity. Please do this, Father, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.